so there are some real domestic obstacles uh, to to this. It's not always just from the the former colonizers, and they play a role too. But but what my work is trying to do is actually shine a bright light on all of these constraints, shine a bright light on the world of possibilities, and empower people with with the knowledge that a better future is within reach. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Fadl Kaboob about his personal story. Fadl is an economics professor at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, and the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, an interdisciplinary public policy think tank. The focus of his work is how the lens of MMT can inform developing nations. I've written a post filled with links to Fadl's papers, posts, and appearances, a link to which you can find in the show notes. Today in part two, Fadl finishes his story about being the parent of three little boys and how music is part of how he raises them. We then turn to his own eclectic taste in music, ranging from Metallica and Guns N' Roses to Tunisian hip-hop. We especially focus on Bob Marley. In the second half of today's episode, we return to academic topics, primarily discussing how Fadl's work on developing nations relates to the work of John Harvey on exchange rate determination. We end on the topic of the 2011 Tunisian uprising, as discussed in the recent New York Times article, in which Fadl is extensively quoted. Now, let's get right back to my conversation with Fadl Kaboom. started asking what is this song about what does it mean for for a two-year-old it's 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 fascinating so and because of that whole experience now his older brothers are so much more into it than they would have been uh, otherwise and it's interesting he started uh, you know with with classical music and now he's into any kind of uh, arabic music we we listen to you know, hip hop and pop music and everything. So, so now he's he's into the the tunes. But classical music is always uh, his thing. Like in the car at home, when he wants to listen to music, wow. we say, "Can Good can job. we put?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I was never like that deep into Arabic classical music until very recently in my life. It's something that usually older adults appreciate more. <laughs> And and uh, so that's what makes it 
very fascinating. Uh, so that, you know, they started asking about instruments, musical instruments. Um, so we now we have a, a few musical instruments at home for them to play with and hopefully at some point to learn more, you know, more thoroughly, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that I never experienced. We didn't have any musical instruments or music classes, uh, you know, music lessons and things like that. Even though I was very musical from an early age, but we never had the opportunity to be exposed to it or practice it and things like mm. that for a variety of reasons. That's um, so that's something that that's kind of uh, uh, makes me happy uh, that, you know, we have this new family thing going that's probably going to, you know, draw the, the kids a bit more to our culture and, 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 and they're very, you know, they share this proudly with their playmates and with their friends. And they even try to play these, these songs for them and try to, and of course the other kids are like, well, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any any sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you taken your family? Have you taken your boys to a a concert, an orchestral concert? Well, this discovery happened during the pandemic. (laughs) Ah, there you go. Um, So I'm looking forward to, to the opportunity to, to do that with them. And I'm hoping as soon as the uh, National Arab American Orchestra starts having concerts again, uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to to make a, a family trip out of it, yeah, uh, either in Michigan nice. or they play in different parts of the country too. But that okay. will be a, a wonderful thing to have. Um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, it's like I, I I'm a classically trained singer, so I have you know I have. A knowledge of classical music and obviously I've heard a lot of it and I don't ever choose to listen to it on my own but I have a deep respect for it and I can I can really enjoy it and obviously it can be exceedingly complicated and you know very complex and 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 it's also it just feels like for children it's just like I just see it as kind of a tool for uh, this is this is not a very elegant way it's not really getting i can't really get my head around what i want to say but basically kind of a tool for calmness you know for Mm -hmm. calming for it's i just see it as as an interesting way to kind of relax it's not it's not really what i mean very soothing and i think that's that's part of the 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 attraction that um this (laughs) two-year-old had it was mesmerizing for him and soothing and calming and it's definitely calming. I mean, when he's fussy in the car, this is the thing I turn on is the classical music. And he said, can you make it a little louder, please? Wow. Smart kid. <laughs> All right. Good for you. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's switch gears a little bit into music of your kind. And now I want to I want to work our way towards Bob Marley. Um, but I'd like to just before we get to Bob Marley, can you give a, a, a little bit more of an idea of the music that you're into? I was surprised to hear Metallica. <laughs> so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, you know, other things whether it's from you know maybe earlier in your life or or currently that you enjoy or you know however you choose to answer sure. that. well i mean we were just talking about music as uh, classical music as, as soothing and all music is soothing in, in different ways and different contexts and different moods and for me i mean the probably the strangest thing you'll hear from me is that you know heavy metal is incredibly soothing also in a different <laughs> way Okay. Um, I actually, you know, you know, enjoy uh, heavy metal, you know, Metallica in particular, and Guns N' Roses at the time when I was uh, a teenager, you know, uh, Nirvana, that that was... In Tunisia? Yeah, yeah, that was the the 90s. 
Um, I'm, I'm surprised of the location of where Guns N' Roses would be in your awareness. Yeah, well, they were, you know, uh, one of the big rock bands at the time internationally. And of course, you know, you, you listen to international music. Um, so soothing in a, in a different way. And, and you know, if, if you ask my kid, um, how did uh, daddy learn English? They'll tell oh, no. you he learned it from Metallica. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. You know, okay. of course, I, we had English classes and everything, but I, I really mastered the, the, the language, at least in terms of sentence structure and vocabulary, through music. And I would look up the lyrics, and at the time there was no internet, so it was really challenging to find the lyrics and to try to match what you're hearing <laughs> with the American accent or with whatever accent they're, they're singing with, with mm-hmm. the text. And, and to get the slang out of it and get the nuances out of it, that was like a, an obsession. Um, and, and that drew me to the English language. But also it's, it's really, the, in many cases, the, the lyrics, the meaning of the songs. Um, and, you know, going with, you know, I was always drawn to music and, and poetry and lyrics that have some nuance about justice, about, you know, unfairness, about troubles. It wasn't just, you know, romantic music, things like that. Of course, we listen to all kinds of pop music. But the, the, the songs that touch me the most, and still to this day, are songs that reflect kind of pain and injustice in um, the unforgiven for example, you know, uh, the Metallica song, that was like very powerful for me as a, as a kid to see this very popular rock band, you know, heavy metal band. They didn't have to sing about this, but it, of course it makes perfect sense. And the music goes so well with it because you can feel the pain, not just from the lyrics, but from the voice and from mm-hmm. the sound of the music. Same thing, Bob Marley had his own way of you know dealing with social justice issues and very painful subjects in a completely different soothing way that reflects those those emotions and i just was constantly fascinated by how much uh completely different sounds and different styles of music and different voices can stir those feelings and and put them on the table for everybody to acknowledge and think about and and uh, and 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 kind of learn from um and and that was uh, you know part of my upbringing um because of the life experiences we we had going from saudi arabia to tunisia with you know some relatively serious kind of uh, economic troubles you know financially <laughs> for for the family and, and for the country as a whole, uh, Tunisia's journey obviously was, was you know, with, with my uh, journey in Tunisia was, was not a, a happy one. And it unfortunately continues to this day. And having to understand, you know, why is it that there was so much wealth in Saudi Arabia for the country? And why is it that there was so much unequal distribution of that wealth, th- so much kind of abuse of, you know, owners and workers, which I didn't understand in the kind of context of capitalism or power. It's just questions like, why, why does it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. And then you go to Tunisia and you see, you know, very talented people, hardworking people, all kinds of resources available, but so much 
pain and suffering and unemployment and exclusion and things getting worse over time. So, of course, that kind of music is very soothing because it helps you make sense of the world. It helps you, um, you know, think about it more calmly. And it, and it gives you these subtle messages of what could be done and, and things like that. So it, I, I was always drawn to that kind of music. And, and today, the kind of uh, music that I'm drawn to the most in terms of lyrics is actually Tunisian hip-hop. Very much social justice-oriented very talented, um, you know, musicians and and songwriters uh, popping up left and right, mostly from disadvantaged neighborhoods, from very poor background, and kind of speaking truth in a beautiful way. And so that's that's the kind of music that I'm drawn to. It doesn't have to be classical. It doesn't have to be metal. It can be anything. It's really the the sound, the voice. And uh, and the lyrics that uh, that draw me the most are are, are kinds of songs of uh, that reflect that that pain and uh, injustice that we see in the world and try to you know explain it or expose it. So soothing, I think, also includes letting off steam. Absolutely, to, you can't yeah. listen to heavy metal with with the volume on you know level two or three, right? <laughs> It's yeah. more soothing when yeah. it's really blasting. <laughs> and, and actually, for me personally, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't agree with some of the substance that he says. But Eminem, oh, there's sure. something really. There's something really. Uh, what do you call it? Just give me that sense. There's a word I can't come up with it at the moment. But there's just the just they. It just lets off steam in sure. a really effective way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so Bob Marley, um, you, I asked you to give me a couple samples of music that impacts you and you said, and you said Bob Marley and you took, you gave me a short list of songs and I listened to him. I'm really not very familiar with him. I mean, I know, you know, I know his big hits, but I certainly never went out of my way to, to really listen to him. And the first song that I encountered by doing this was uh, belly full, but we hungry. I think that's the title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, bellyful, but we hungry, and and why it why it was struck me so much is because I learned how he died. He died in 1981 at 36 from cancer, from a, a very unusual cancer, and it seemed like he didn't really want to go to the doctor. He kind of wanted to to um, you know try and heal naturally. And I may be off, but I think roughly there's something there. There's some truth to that, and it actually reminds me of one of my own idols, who is Jim Henson who got pneumonia and mm -hmm. didn't, it, it, he just ignored it. He, it wasn't a conscious decision to not get treated, but he ignored it and he kept on working hard and he died because of pneumonia. It, it took him over, took over him. And so it kind of reminds me of that, but it's just, and there's something particularly sad about that, that song because, and it just that it happened to be the first song really struck me because there's a line in that song where he says, uh, let me see where, forget your sickness and dance in that song, mm -hmm. forget your sickness and dance. And that's what he was basically doing. That's how he died. Um, so, uh, so Bob Marley, yeah. how did he impact you? I mean, that, that I was very, it was very disconcerting. I mean, sure. that, that was the first, my entryway into Bob Marley was this very sad and <laughs> coincidental, you know, yeah. please. 
Well, uh, of course, the very first Bob Marley songs that I was introduced to were the popular ones, um, not not necessarily the, the the rebel songs. But then, you know, some of his very popular songs are sort of rebel songs, like "I Shot the Sheriff" and uh, "Redemption Song" and, and so on. And then that drew me into kind of listening to more of his lesser known kind of uh, obscure music, including, you know, at some point I bumped into this album that was literally recorded in his kitchen with mm. very few instruments, if like kitchen, you know, appliances, I think, or like mm. for drumming or something. And, and it wasn't for the, I mean, the music was interesting. I mean, for the sound was terrible and all that, but but the lyrics and, and just the vibe of, of the whole thing was just um, mesmerizing. And then I started, you know, digging further into uh, his repertoire, and, and you find a lot of, like, serious rebel music that reflects uh, his country's situation in Jamaica, political and, and social unrest, that he was drawn into very deeply and was, you know, his life was on the line for, you know, siding with, or not siding, for being, having been perceived as siding with one faction versus the, the other, even though he never sided with any political um, party, but both political parties at the time were trying to label him as one of their supporters. And, um, and, and I think th- that assassination attempt was, was part of that. Um, yeah, and that caused him to move to England, I believe. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, his his music is incredibly powerful, and and you just hear so much pain and truth in in his voice and and the lyrics, and in a very simple way. It's not like very complex statements. It's like actually, I was that's just why thinking... it, it touched the the average person in a very direct way. I was actually just thinking that he ta- he has a rather kind of simple rhyming structure in all of the songs that I've heard, mm-hmm. the, the maybe five or six songs that I've heard doing particularly research for this. But he has just a way of using that and putting it together in a way that's really satisfying. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Bob Marley was, was just part of that um, musical discovery for me. And then, you know, I, I usually uh, not necessarily avoid, but... Uh, try not to get too much into the you know the musician's personal life because it's it's uh, you know it's it's in many cases it's very complex you, you you only see it through the lens of the media and and reports and sometimes it's biased so it gives you a completely you know sometimes misleading image of the individual but I, I dabble into that territory just by curiosity, just to see, you know, who they are, what made them who they are, what what's the context behind this uh, this song. So that's where I go into documentaries, trying to, you know, understand a little bit of, of their lives. And then you, it's in many cases, it helps you really understand the context of, of the music. So Metallica, for example, you know, massively successful metal band and and then mm-hmm. goes into crisis mode and i don't know if you've seen this documentary i forget what it's called about the return of metallica and it's really a therapy session a long therapy session with the therapist mm. <laughs> with the band trying mm. to help them kind of restart the band in this last journey and that, mm. and that's where you get to kind of understand you know, the, the personal pain that they go through, because you see the, the glossy image of these, you know, rock stars 
and you think, well, he's a jerk for doing this or that, or, but then you, you really, and that, you know, no matter how biased that documentary may have been, it just gives you a little window into their personal uh, struggles because everybody struggles, you know, even, you know, wealthy, very successful people. Uh, and it just makes you appreciate a little bit more of the, of the context in which they, they write and in, in mm-hmm. what they produce. Same thing. I mean, a lot, a lot of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Bruce Springsteen, uh, like one man show that he did. I, I haven't watched it yet, but I heard like little clips of interviews with him about his personal mental health struggles uh, as uh, on the stage and off the stage and things like that. And it just makes you appreciate the, you know, what, what they go through. And he was like, in one of the interviews, he said, you know, that, you know, very happy looking person on the stage. I want to be that person Mm. (laughs) because that's, that's a show, right? He's a performer. And um, so, so that, you know, the, the personal life, the personal journey is always present in, in their experience uh, and, and in their kind of writing. And it's not true for everybody, but when it's there, it's much more meaningful. So I, I appreciate that aspect. And of course, Bob Marley is, is one of those cases, Metallica, Nirvana, you know, other, other musicians and, and a lot of hip hop singers it's they're not making up stories they're telling the stories of their community they're telling their personal stories and and when it's uh, a story of of pain and suffering and struggle it's uh, that's even more uh, meaningful um for me okay um okay so if there's anything else regarding uh, any of the personal subjects music anything um could you Say that now, and then let's go into MMT. I think let's go into MMT, yeah. Okay, let's go to MMT. Sure. Um, Okay, I I have a a few paragraphs to read, and I think that that's going to set us up for the rest of this conversation. Um, So let me say this. Okay, and you'll, you'll correct me as necessary, but I think I'm pretty close. So MMT defines sovereignty for a nation. It makes it clear what's possible when a nation has sovereignty and if it doesn't have sovereignty, why it doesn't and the steps necessary to get it. It may be unlikely or even impossible to achieve that, but you have to understand the path or, you know, otherwise it's impossible to achieve the journey. So, you know, uh, a developing nation may, for example, may find it impossible to get out from under the thumb of its colonizers. But really, that's not that's not so different from developed countries because we have the ability to do it here in the U.S. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen because you know who's at the wheel. They're just simply not going to do it. So even though we have sovereignty, there is a similarity with developing nations here because we're never going to get a job guarantee. You know, we're, it, our current path, we're not going to get a job guarantee. We're not going to get health care, even though we have the ability to do that. So on one end is general MMT concepts as applies to a single nation, especially sovereign nations, but I'm, and I'm going to call that domestic MMT. On the other end is your work, which is applying the lens of MMT to developing nations. And I'll call, I'll just call that foreign MMT. And, and, and I, uh, I guess it's, what has it been about a year now? I, I started, I studied the work of John Harvey 
And his work, or at least one of his specialties, is foreign is, is foreign exchange is currency. Uh, what's it called? Uh, exchange rates. De- thank you. Exchange yeah. rate determination. Yeah. Exchange rate determination. And I see that as the glue that puts your work and domestic MMT together. So, uh, hold on a sec. Understanding the reality of exchange rate determination, where the exchange rate of financial assets overwhelms trade, which is the exchange of real goods and services, uh, uh, the exchange of financial assets happens like 10 more times than real real goods. So just uh, to start this off, do you agree with me that that's kind of a glue that holds it together? Or can you just kind of give a perspective of how these three elements, domestic MMT, foreign MMT, which is your work, and then exchange rate determination of how these things fit together? Yeah, I mean, your description is is accurate. But as you were um, uh, reading this, it, it made me, uh, it reminded me of um, what young Craig Gold uh, says about about this, and, and he says, all, "There's no such thing as developed in developing countries. All countries are developing, right? <laughs> it's just a different and different paths and diff- different rates." So that remark is actually pretty consistent with the MMT framework of about the spectrum of monetary sovereignty. Uh, that you know, different countries have different sets of resources and institutional settings, and so on. And some of those uh, settings give them a larger degree of monetary sovereignty and as a result, uh, a larger fiscal spending capacity, fiscal policy space. And some countries are more constrained. And as a result, they have a weaker degree of monetary sovereignty and a a much, much smaller um, fiscal spending capacity. And what determines where they sit on that spectrum of monetary sovereignty, high degree or or low degree or in in the middle, has to do with the level of external debt commitments that they have. The more external debt you have, the smaller the fiscal spending capacity. The less external debt you have, the more fiscal spending capacity you typically have. So uh, countries like the US or Japan the entire debt is denominated in the national currency, you have a high degree of, of monetary sovereignty. And the, and the glue that you were talking about, the exchange rate um, uh, kind of uh, mode that they use, uh, also has to do with that external debt because the more external debt you have, it means the more constrained your economy is. And as a result, the more desperate you're going to be as a country to fix your exchange rate to the US dollar or the euro or the British pound and so on. Mm. And the higher degree of monetary sovereignty you have, the less constrained you are. And as a result, the less likely you're going to have to fix your exchange rate or worrying about your exchange rate because your entire debt stock is in your national currency and your economy is much more resilient to these external shocks. So you don't really need to desperately fix your exchange rate. And once you're desperate to fix your exchange rate, it becomes a vicious cycle. You fix your exchange rate because of the structural weaknesses you have. And as a result, in order to temporarily you know, relieve your economy, you do it with this Band-Aid solution, which is more external debt to fix your exchange rate and keep, you know, protect your, your economy from the inflation pass-through effect 
that comes into your economy via imports, especially if those imports are basic necessities like food or fuel or medicine or capital equipment that you need to keep your economy running and so on. And so that's really the, the, the way I usually think of the, the concept of monetary sovereignty. And, and that's where you know, it becomes helpful to separate our analysis of a country like the U.S., from our analysis of a country like Greece or Tunisia or you know Bangladesh and so on, you start placing these countries on the spectrum. You understand the the realm of possibilities for each country, uh, and and you have sort of an analytical framework to to figure out which variables really drive the system and create these constraints. And then once you have that level of clarity about what causes what and what is, then you start thinking of strategies to address the root causes of those structural weaknesses. And and as I um, always say, in, in the case of developing countries, those structural weaknesses start with external debt that's primarily accumulated over time because of these structural weaknesses in the form of lack of food security, lack of energy security, and a a type of industrialization that is deficient because it focuses on exporting low value-added content, kind of assembly line type of uh, manufacturing with a race to the bottom in terms of wages and and so on. And and those countries typically import higher value-added content, higher tech equipment, and so on. So you put together these three structural problems and you have a trap. And the only way to get out of that trap is to build resilience in those areas, starting with food and energy, because you can't have a functioning society or economy without food and without energy. So you start with the foundation and you build from there. You can't start with, um, you know, putting together a Silicon Valley type of economy when you can't feed your people, when you can't, you know, fuel your industry or transportation system or heat and cool your buildings. So you have to prioritize certain things. We're not saying, you know, give up technology and innovation, all that, but you have to prioritize the foundation. Uh, And that's something that many developing countries mismanaged in the early days after independence. In some cases, it was internal mismanagement, but part of it was also a global situation whereby countries in the global north intentionally put in place strategies to strengthen their food and energy security system and to, as a result, weaken the, the food security systems in the, in the global south. Uh, uh, the CAP um, agreement, CAP, which is the Common Agricultural Policy of the EU, uh, was was big part of this because it intentionally closed off the borders, uh, European borders, on uh, African exports of agricultural goods uh, to Europe. Because during colonial times, that's where food came from, from the colonies. But mm. now the colonies are independent and have their food security and have a food surplus to export to Europe, and Europe doesn't have food security. Mm. So the, the cap uh, policy was to rebuild the food security system in Europe and as a result uh, create the situation in the global south in Africa in particular where that massive food surplus now can't be exported so the prices will crash farmers will go out of business and those farmers have to live somewhere right find a, a new source of livelihood they move to the big cities and look for manufacturing jobs or 
you know, uh, retail jobs or whatever it is. So now you've destroyed your your agricultural base because you've lost the farmers and 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 people kind of moved away from the industry and the only farmers remaining in in practice are struggling to find markets for their for their output especially when you're in a, in a small economy and then the governments in in the global south start prioritizing exports of the crops that Europe doesn't have and Europe is willing to pay a premium for. So that happens to be things like strawberries, right? So mm-hmm. you use your most fertile land, your most precious water resources to produce strawberries as opposed to crops that are actually needed for your food security like wheat or corn or things like that. So you create this vicious cycle whereby your farmers who are struggling to stay in business are incentivized to mismanage your natural resources to serve the European economy and to generate euros and dollar revenues for the country in order to pay for the food imports and energy imports and technology imports. And that's just uh, kind of looking at the situation from both sides of this problem, from the global south perspective, global north perspective. It creates this perfect storm uh, situation for um, for food insecurity and uh, in, in the global south. And climate change, of course, makes it much worse uh, over can I, time. Can I ask a question about that? Yes, please. A question about that? Um, uh, this exporting strawberries, because they can get a premium from the EU, and that kind of, and be, that kind of implies that it's a little bit of a choice, where, it, I, as I understand your work, what's really behind this all is powerful nations putting less powerful nations under their thumb. Mm-hmm. So is the straw, is the, is the exporting the strawberries because they'll get a premium for that? Is that, is that we're doing this because we're desperate for dollars because we're colonized or it's like, both. Like choice versus yeah. choice versus colonization? Yeah, it's both because, you know, we live in a post-colonial world that was preceded by a colonial system and the colonial system started a lot of these paths. So for farmers um, and other, this applies, by the way, to other areas beyond strawberries, for, for businesses that have been supplying, say, European markets with whatever items, you know, raw materials, minerals, strawberries, whatever it is, during colonial times. During post-colonial times, they continue the, the export routes, right, to Europe. So these mm-hmm. things don't just uh, disappear. Um, so that's, that's kind of part of the, uh, the colonial and neocolonial continuation. But the post-colonial situation with the accumulation of external debt forces now a country like Tunisia, as a matter of policy, government policy, to uh, incentivize even more farmers to produce strawberries, even more producers to export to Europe, because now we're desperate for those dollar and euro revenues to pay for external debt and to stabilize the uh, exchange rate. So it, it goes both ways. And of course, from a European perspective, it works well because you get, you know, to keep your food security and you get, you know, high quality, cheaper strawberries that are, you know, massive consumers of water and resources from other countries. And, and you're not just buying from one country. You have a whole bunch of desperate global South countries competing 
for the European market. So it's a, it becomes a global race to, to the to the bottom in the global south to so compete for for European markets, access to European markets. That's so interesting because they'll pay a premium for what two, three day old strawberries rather than grow their own strawberries there. So it's like. You know, if they could have the strawberries right when they were born, the, uh, born, grown, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> grown, then they would be like even better. But they are paying a premium for how long does it take to ship? Two, three days? I have no idea. Well, so they're, it's, they're it's not just the for- shipping time; it's the growing season. So the North African growing season will be a, a few weeks ahead of the European growing season because of the climate. Okay. So you get a longer strawberry season in other words for consumers because you start the season with the strawberries grown in and and more moderate climate in north africa for example okay yeah okay that makes sense um uh, i have a, a definitional question and then i want to come back to what we've been talking about but i want to ask one more question before we get there can you define uh pass through inflation and i believe it's something to do with that things are more expensive in your own country because the exchange rate is bad because you have external debt. Sure. So when when countries have a structural trade deficit, so year after year, um, when you have a trade deficit, the value of your currency weakens relative to the dollar, right? So your currency becomes cheaper, in other words. And with the weaker currency, with a weaker exchange rate, everything you import becomes more expensive. Okay. So if, and especially if the things that you import are basic necessities like food or fuel or medicine, and all of those things, when you import them, now they are imported at a relatively higher price when you try to sell them in your domestic market, right? So that's the inflation. That's when we say inflation, importing inflation, right? And that's the pass-through effect. And, typically, and why is that not considered just regular inflation as opposed? Why does it have to be called pass-through inflation? Uh, because it, it comes through the exchange rate system. Okay. Right? Okay. So uh, the same product uh, for the same price in U.S. dollars, uh, in U.S. dollars, all of a sudden is more expensive in Tunisian dinars terms mm. when you bring okay. it to the domestic economy because the exchange rate is, is cheaper, um, okay. is weaker. So the way that governments typically deal with that inflation pass-through effect is by artificially trying to keep their exchange rate strong. So the way to do this is by borrowing U.S. dollars. The government or the central bank borrows U.S. dollars from foreign lenders in order to keep the exchange rate with the dollar strong so that everything you import comes in at a stable price, not an inflated price. Okay. The other option is for the government not to stabilize the exchange rate, let it weaken, and then subsidize consumers. So you bring in food and energy and, uh, and, and medicine and have a whole set of subsidy system to make sure that consumers are actually not paying the inflated price. And, and that also means it's a, it's a not only logistically more complicated system for the government to... Uh, to do, but also it accumulates more external debt because essentially the government is paying the premium uh, yeah. and, and kind of footing the bill for, for the population. But that also accumulates external debt. Whichever way yeah. you're doing it, you're trying to protect the consumers 
And a system of subsidies, you know, no matter how transparent your government is, is going to accumulate uh, abusive market power for some key players who will benefit from the uh, import system, can, you know, abuse that domestically and, and cause a different kind of inflation that's kind of related to abusive market power and exclusive privilege that they have. So it's, it's never a good thing. And that's why most of my work is focusing on what are the areas of resilience that you need to invest in so that you get yourself out of that trap permanently. And that is investing in food security domestically. So you don't have to rely on imports and subsidies and external debt to you know, feed your people. And, and that happens to be also an area of sustainability because agricultural sustainability is part of this solution. The second thing is, is renewable energy investment so that you have domestic uh, energy supply, especially for electricity production and for a more efficient uh, public transportation system and so on. So you don't have to import fossil fuels at sometimes very uh, painful prices. Uh, as you know, global oil prices fluctuate dramatically. And when they fluctuate in the wrong direction for you, it, it means very severe increases in your trade deficit and as a result in your external debt. So that's how you protect yourself from that imported inflation is by building resilient uh, areas in, in food and, and energy. And then you start building from there in, in health and in education and other areas. And, in, and that makes it, you know, theoretically sounds good. But in practice, it's not as simple for the following reason. Many developing countries are small in size. Uh, so you can't really build, you know, you can't industrialize in an economy that has five or six or 10 million consumers because you don't get to the economies of scale, kind of large levels of, of production that allow you to reduce cost and improve efficiency and all that, unless you have access to large markets of consumers. And if you're in the early stage of industrialization, you don't have access to those markets. And if you have access to those markets, you're not competitive enough to compete with made in Germany, made in Japan, made in, you know, you know uh, global north countries. So you end up with an industry that will be crushed by competition and, and made to disappear. Or you end up with an industry that is simply an assembly line for the high value added content produced by Japan and Germany and France and, and so on. And that's typically the trap that developing countries are, are in. They don't have enough of the industrialization capacity to compete at that level. So you end up on the lower end of the global supply chain. So the, the only solution to this is strategic partnerships in the global south primarily, whereby you can have a, a regional global south trading block that has a strategy for building that collective resilience and building that industrial base, because now you have a market of say 200 million consumers. So you're, you're not just a small economy of, of 10 million consumers. And you can use complementary resources, uh, complementary sets of capabilities in a strategic way to start building industries that can uh, grow in, in the block and eventually be able to compete globally. Otherwise, this myth of competing in the global economy is, is just nonsense. There is no way you can compete with you know, German, French, American, Japanese companies, Chinese companies. Yeah. It's, it's just at a, at a 
completely different level of industrializations. And there is no such thing as catching up, which is, by the way, catching up is a, is a technical term in the economics profession that, that is just the most absurd thing that they tell you, well, the yeah. developed countries are over there and you're developing and now you need to work on catching up. You know, yeah, work it's faster, like kinder- work better, work harder. Yeah, it's like a kindergarten football team. Oh, you'll catch up to the NFL. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, there is no catching up. It's just a completely yeah. different league, and you just have to accept yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have I have two final questions for you, but you are very thorough in a wonderful way with your answers. So I'm afraid it's going to take us over time. So I want to I want to uh, if it's okay, I'm going to ask both of them to you, sure. and then you can kind of handle them both as you as you see fit. So they're they're. They're kind of different, but I'm just I'm just gonna do it because I, I really do want to know both of these things. Um, so okay, so first is uh, uh, going back to John Harvey. First of all, I would I don't know what it would be about, but I would love to see you guys just talk for two hours on like a panel. I just just to just to kind of you know meld you, the your work together. I just, I just would love that. But the, the exchange of financial assets overwhelms trade. Okay. So, uh, the, uh, the financial trade is like 90 to 98% of all transactions on the, on the international scale. So the exchange of financial assets obviously has a great influence on international transactions and exchange rate determination, which neoclassical economics ignores. They only focus on trade of real goods and services. And then, then it's your work. Your work shows that real resources are obviously critical to, to provisioning a developing nation, any nation. They need real resources. And then domestic MMT, which is my term, mm-hmm. basic understanding of MMT shows that real resources are the only thing that matters within a country to provision yourself and your people, your government and your people. And I, I, I'm confident that that's correct. Both of those things are correct. But what's I'm, what I'm struggling with is that kind of seems like a contradiction to talk about your work where real resources are all that matters to provisioning a country, energy security, food security, and so on. But at the same time, exchange rate determination is, is almost entirely really influenced by financial trade. So that kind of seems like a contradiction to me. And I'd like you to help me kind of put those two things together. So that's, that's question number one. And I'm going to ask question number two right away, which is a little bit different, but uh, just for time constraint, I'm going to do it. So you remember that one. Yesterday, you were uh, extensively quoted in a, an interesting New York Times article about the, I believe it was 2011 Tunisian Re- revolution. Mm-hmm. And, and the revolution basically didn't do anything as far as solving the core problems that your work illuminates. So it, it did some superficial stuff. It did some, some you know, it dealt with some symptoms, but none of the foreign debt was cured. None of the, the disease was cured. So they're still basically in the same situation. And so, Mike, I, I have a, a narrow question about that. And that is simply the revolution, they had a chance, you know, it was a revolution. They had a chance to really make some change. And yet, they're in exactly the same boat as they were. They basically put a Band-Aid on a Grand Grinness leg, and now they're, they're happy about it. They're happy about it. They felt So I'm wondering, how much does economic ignorance come into play that this revolution, they had the chance to wield their power, and they wielded it in a completely inappropriate, ineffective way? 
then their ignorance made them think, you know, this is my speculation, their ignorance of economics made them think that they were doing the right thing and on the right path and asking the right things and demanding the right things. But in reality, they hardly did anything. So I, I know that they're kind of different questions. You you want me to remind you or whatever? You have them both? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So please, I, yeah, please address both as, as best as you can in the time that you have left. Yeah. The, so the, the first question about the... Um, you know my work and and John Harvey's work was a, was a great friend and and mentor to me he has been a great mentor for me since I was in grad school just a wonderful wonderful person you know having both of us uh, on a panel or or discussion for 2 hours would be great except you know I'll be you know destroyed on the humor front <laughs> by, <laughs> by by John Harvey I'm I'm not even close to the the, the level of uh lucidity that he has in delivering kind of the the, the core message in, in, in mm-hmm. such a wonderful and entertaining uh, entertaining way uh, but I, but I'd love the opportunity to have conversation with him anytime obviously um, so that being said you know the contradiction that you refer to there between the the actual volume of trade versus the volume of financial transactions that cross borders essentially, it is a is part of the nature of, of capitalism, the capital system that we have, which is highly speculative, especially in financial markets and especially in, in currency markets. So that's just the, the, the reality of it. And, and that has to be uh, addressed. The, the, the area where I sort of intersect a little bit with um, with John's uh, work there, not not directly. I mean, we're we're both post Keynesians and working in the MMT space. But when you think of my work on um, kind of making the case for reparations, colonial reparations, climate reparations, I always start that argument by saying, if you take the global South and global North and divide the world in two units and net out all the financial transactions globally, including foreign direct investment and, you know, aid and charity and interest payments and all of that, the the net amount is $2 trillion moving from the global south to the global north. And at that rate, because that, that number keeps increasing every year, at, at that rate, there is no way we're going to put a dent in climate change or addressing issues of uh, development, poverty, you know, socioeconomic exclusion, you name it, all of these, you know, uh, problems that we're trying to deal with, it's not going to happen if we're constantly living in a system that sucks resources um, and financial resources from the global south and brain drain from the global south. So we have to reverse those flows. And and that's where uh, John's work becomes powerful because it gives us the analytical tools to understand what determines exchange rates, what's creating those scenarios, and what are the kind of policy uh, Mm. strategies that we can put in place um, redesign the global financial system. So, so I'll, I'll leave it at that in terms of that, that contradiction. Okay. Your, your second question about uh, the, my comments in the, in the New York Times, um, can you remind me again of the? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Basically, there was a revolution. They had the chance to leverage power. Oh, is it ignorance it really or? Re- and and yeah. so they did did ignorance point them in the wrong direction, which is the perfect neoliberal tool to, you know, they don't have to worry about a revolution because they're going to ask for the wrong things anyway. Right. 
Yeah. So, uh, and, I, and I said this from from the early days of the revolution that you know this political transformation is is wonderful. We can you know fight for a better constitution, freedom of speech, uh, you know, political pluralism, and all of that. The, the, that's wonderful. And 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 of course, it's not an easy transition to begin with, right? It's uh, that's a major achievement, despite all the problems that Tunisia faced on the political front including political assassinations and, you know, all kinds of political crises. But overall, we've moved from, you know, a dictatorship system to, uh, to a democratic system that is still work in progress, obviously, but it's still um, much, much uh, better than what we had. But on the economic front, we use the same economic development model that was implemented by the dictatorship regime, which was the neoliberal IMF World Bank, you know, economic policy prescription that was introduced after the debt crisis of the 1980s. And Tunisia's debt crisis was 1986-87. Um, well, it started 85, actually, but the, it, it resolved by the late 80s with IMF loans and IMF policy prescriptions to privatize government businesses you know, encourage more exports, more tourism, more foreign direct investment, and and make the labor market more flexible. So try to weaken kind of the, the position of the working class of labor. Uh, all of those policies were implemented there. And then what did we do after the revolution? We focus our attention on, on fixing the political system, the judicial system, the policing system, and all of that. And we use the exact same economic development model, trying to promote tourism, trying to promote foreign direct investment, trying to promote all the same strategies of the previous era. And when you understand that Tunisia's structural problems, as I explained earlier, related to external debt, have to do primarily with the lack of food security, lack of energy security, and the low value-added content of exports, well, what did we do after the revolution? We promote tourism. Well, the more tourists you bring, the more food you have to import, the more energy you have to import. You promote exports of low value added content. Well, guess what? You're going to have to import more energy to fuel those industries. And you have to import more technology, more components, intermediate goods of higher value added in order to export a low value added product. So we simply accelerated and restarted the same engine that existed in Tunisia prior to the revolution. And that engine produced inequality, produced unemployment, produced socioeconomic exclusion, produced pollution, produced less resilience in terms of food security and energy security. And we just took the same engine and said, let's do it. Let's run the same engine much faster, hopefully in a democracy without corruption, with free elections and freedom of speech as if the engine all of a sudden is going to produce different results simply because we have freedom of speech. Well, the engine is there to produce the same results, and it did produce the same results, more unemployment, socioeconomic exclusion, poverty, and so on. And now, you know, 10 years after the, the uprisings of 2010, 2011, we're back to square one with much bigger problems on our hands because of the pandemic and because so many young people began to lose hope in this new democratic open system to the point where you hear people verbalizing it and saying we were better off under dictatorship. We had law and order. We had food. We had, it wasn't a perfect system, but we didn't have this chaos. 
right? And we didn't have this continuation of abuse because when you see unemployment and inequality and socioeconomic exclusion in a system that's democratic, well, who do you blame? You don't blame a dictator. You blame the political parties, the rulers, the leaders, the MPs, and the business elites who run the country. And you say, well, they are the problem. It wasn't the dictator, right? It's, so it becomes even more uh, clear to the population that there is a, a class problem here. It wasn't a dictatorship problem, right? Oh, so who's going to attack that class system and dismantle it other than a powerful dictator, right? A savior, mm-hmm. right? And that is a very dangerous outcome to sacrifice, you know, you know, people died for during the uprisings. People, you know, even some political leaders were assassinated in the transition mm-hmm to democracy and the process of writing the new constitution. So it, it, and many people died with the economic consequences of neglect, especially during the pandemic. Um, so this is, this is very painful for, for the whole country and, and very discouraging for young people to see the world of possibilities in which they live and to see that there is very little hope for their future, for their children, for their families, and, and to recognize that the country is, is full of talent uh, and, and know-how and potential, and that is being wasted and being destroyed because of mismanagement. So to, to close this and to answer your direct question, you know, the, these decisions are not necessarily just exclusively imposed by the West in terms of which economic development model. Quite a bit of this is actually fully internalized and accepted by political leaders, economic decision uh, makers in, in Tunisia and other parts of the global south who truly believe in this neoliberal model as the solution. And this is true mm-hmm. for all political parties, left, right, and center. When you ask them, what is your economic platform? It's the exact replica of the old model. Mm. And, and that, is, that is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, I mean, your your you know your work is is we we have to increase our energy security, we have to increase our food security, we have to reduce our foreign denominated debt, and obviously, what it all boils down to is we have to stand up to our colonizers, so we can do those things. Like you, 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 you give the ingredients of what needs to be done, but none of these things can be done until those who benefit from them not being done get out of power. So it's like you know that revolution. If they had said. We need to stand up to our colonizers, which I mean, you kind of addressed by saying we need to get rid of, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but basically we need to get rid of these basically predatory politicians or whatever. I don't remember how you said it. Yeah, um, but, but you also have to recognize that the, the, the former colonizers have uh, kind of domestic agents continuing to serve their interests or at least fitting in, in their agenda. So, for example, in terms of food security. You know, there's, there's huge movement in Tunisia of farmers and activists and, and academics and intellectuals who are actually calling for investment in, uh, uh, you know, food security and sustainable agriculture and so on. And actually trying to do it with very limited resources that they have. There's a huge food sovereignty movement in the global south. But who's opposing that food sovereignty system? If I'm one of the importers of wheat for the whole country, let's say a country like uh, Tunisia, 
and, and typically countries that have this level of food insecurity, the government will assign exclusive import licenses for key individuals to import wheat, to import medicine, gasoline, all the key items. And it's usually handed over to a handful of powerful business people sure. who can ensure the continuous supply and getting the logistics done and everything, uh, but also gives them a, a, a exclusive market power. Now, if, one of, if I'm one of those powerful business people that have exclusive control over the, the wheat supply for the country, why would I want to encourage domestic activists and farmers to take away part of my market share and make my whole business model irrelevant because I just charge commission for the logistics right. of importing wheat or medicine or whatever it is. So I'm right. going to do whatever I can to influence the politicians, the political parties that I'm connected with to convince them not to support those farmers. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the nice way to do it. I'll even sponsor, you know, um, chamber of commerce research to show that the food security of the country is better off with these imports. It's better quality. It's better. This It's better that. And, and this is kind of the, the, the nice way of doing it. But in some parts of the world, this goes into actual violence against those activists and organizers who are trying to, uh, you'll vote the political party out of office uh, by supporting the opposition it goes into political assassinations in some case. So right. there are some real domestic obstacles uh, to to this. It's not always just from the, the former colonizers. And they play a role too. But But what my work is trying to do is actually shine a bright light on all of these constraints, shine a bright light on the world of possibilities, and empower people with, with the knowledge that a better future is within reach if you have a coherent strategy to, uh, to achieve it and if you understand what the real obstacles are. The real obstacles is not necessarily the lack of financial resources. The real obstacles is what I described here. And avoiding the solutions that, that are actually Band-Aid solutions but structurally are long-term traps that I described earlier. Uh, so this is this is part of the the problem, and and the economics profession has a lot to do with this by ignoring market power, by ignoring or not ignoring corruption, but assuming corruption is is, is just this uh, kind of broad you know category that doesn't have specific links to economic development and and poverty. So I, I think the MMT framework just gives us a different lens, and I think it's a clearer lens to conceptualize and to develop an analytical framework that becomes kind of a, a toolkit for policymakers to understand how you can get out of these traps. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I just have a final comment and uh, I, I believe I'm right or at least in the ballpark. So, I mean, if you want to respond, you can. Uh, you, they do have domestic allies. Of course, they have domestic allies and we and, and they need those those people need to get out of there. Uh, because they benefit from the system not helping, you know, not having food security, not having uh, energy security, and so on. Um, but I, you know, it's those people are there for a reason. The system enables them to get into power for a reason. So I do think that there is an element of those local people who need to be dealt with. The system set up by the colonizers, in a, to an extent, makes that possible. 
So it's, 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 you know, it's obviously not totally independent. There is standing up to those, to the colonizers, colonizing countries is really standing up to those local allies, standing up to those local allies is really standing up to the colonizers and so on. And that, yes, increasing food security and energy security directly will result in standing up to those who need to be standed up, stood up to. Sure. And it's also true that standing up to them directly will increase food security directly. So, you know, you need to attack it from all ends and, and also you need to be aware of, it's like, it's nobody's fault. It's not the colonizer's fault. It's not the local allies fault. It's nobody's fault. It's just the whole system is set up to, you know, to, to make this happen. Absolutely. I mean, it's, that's why I describe it as a perfect storm yeah. of all of yeah. these, uh, you know, um, mechanisms working against you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Fadal, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I, I have learned a lot from you uh, over the past three years. Um, thank you. I have a memory of your, I believe it was 2017 Ohio video for, with real progressives, um, that in particular, um, I keep going back to that. I, that I learned a lot about from, I mean, from, uh, yeah. So thank you for, for everything you do. Thank you so much for giving me this time and doing something I think that was pretty unique. Thank you. Um, so if there's anything you want to close out with, if there's anything you're going to be on, you're very busy. Yeah. Um, please share. Well, uh, thank you again for, for the opportunity and for all the, you know, uh, wonderful questions you, you prepared for, for the conversation today. Um, I'll just encourage uh, people to, you know, join us in, in this struggle uh, and do what they can, which starts by, you know, learning and empowering yourself with, with this perspective, uh, sharing it with other people in your network, in your community, uh, and joining the effort in, in whichever way you, you can. Some people are organizers, some people are academics, some people are teachers, kind of um, sharing this perspective and inviting people to join a movement that's motivated by, you know, uh, social justice and, and economic justice in your own community and at the national level, uh, but also globally. Uh, and, and, and join us in these conversations. There's a, a whole network of organizations here in the U.S. and, and globally now uh, engaged in these MMT conversations. Obviously, this podcast, Macro and Cheese by Real Progressives, the MMT podcast, and uh, and, and several others that I'm probably forgetting, but, you know, find uh, a lot of these resources online, tons of YouTube videos, op-eds, articles, uh, podcasts, uh, you name it. There's, there's plenty of resources and opportunities to connect with, um, with people in this, in this movement. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you so much. And, uh, I will see you back online and, uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. 
My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Fadl Kaboob about his personal story. Fadl is an economics professor at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, and the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, an interdisciplinary public policy think tank. The focus of his work is how the lens of MMT can inform developing nations. I've written a post filled with links to Fadl's papers, posts, and appearances, a link to which you can find in the show notes. Today in part two, Fadl finishes his story about being the parent of three little boys and how music is part of how he raises them. We then turn to his own eclectic taste in music, ranging from Metallica and Guns N' Roses to Tunisian hip-hop. We especially focus on Bob Marley. In the second half of today's episode, we return to academic topics, primarily discussing how Fadl's work on developing nations relates to the work of John Harvey on exchange rate determination. We end on the topic of the 2011 Tunisian uprising, as discussed in the recent New York Times article, in which Fadl is extensively quoted. Now, let's get right back to my conversation with Fadl Kaboob. (laughs) 